You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 52, The Ottomans. I want to get into the Ottoman battles with the British for the spring of 1915. That's where this crazy train is bound for. But before I can do that, it's important to take some steps back and discuss some history of the Ottomans before the outbreak of the Great War, which ultimately led to them being dragged into it. I'm not going to discuss Gallipoli since I've done multiple episodes on that. I also won't go deep into the Armenians and their history with the Ottomans since I also did an episode about the Armenian Genocide. But trust me, there is plenty more history to cover on the Ottomans before the war and just 1915 alone, which will get me to where I want to be. This will at least be a two-part series. Not a chance I can get this done in one. But before I get on with it, let me do this. I'm sad to announce that this will be the last episode recorded in Les Studio. On the episode following this, I'll be settled into my new studio. Hope, <laughs> I'm saying that with quotations, hopefully settled. My wife and I are moving at the end of this month. I get my own office slash man cave slash podcasting studio, and I'm super excited about this. It's really her fault if she doesn't see me much. She's the one who suggested the office for me. Although, maybe this was her plan. Hmm. Anywho, I'm happy about it. Which leads me to what I'm drinking for this episode. I am drinking a hazy IPA. Wow, that went everywhere. From Harlan Brewing in San Diego, California. Now, I've I've kind of grown away from IPAs, I'll admit, but every once in a while I'll try one. And um, my buddy actually works at Harlan Brewing, so I, I seen this at my liquor store. And by the way, my liquor store, I'm hearing this guy talk. He's clearly the one running this show. And he's talking to another customer saying, we have 1,100 different styles of beer and all these coolers. And honestly, I'm not exaggerating, probably 90% of those beers are all IPAs. So I'm looking down the aisles for something just a little different. First of all, I wanted a German beer. They didn't have any German beers or a good selection. So then I looked for a Belgian beer. I didn't really find much. Um, so then I just found Harlan Brew and I said, well, my friend works there. You know what? I'm going to try the Hazy IPA. Again, I don't drink IPAs much anymore. I lost the taste for it. But every once in a while, I'll give a stab at it just to see if my palate has changed. So let me see. Actually, that one's not, not, it's not bad. It's very hazy. I don't know. I just, me and IPAs, I don't know. But this one's, this one's not bad. All right, I'm going to drink it. What the hell? Of course I'm going to drink it. I opened it. All right. How about some recapping from the last episode? So what do you think about Louis Bartas' experience at the Third Battle of Artois? You take a guy like Barthas, who was mobilized prior to the Great War kicking off, 
The third battle of Artois wasn't his first rodeo when it came to battles. This, along with his view on the war, it shouldn't really come as a shock. He was, let's just say, he was salty by this point. He lost several friends up to now. The elements of war were taking its toll on him mentally and physically, but he was able to hold himself together and not crack. And here's the thing. I talked about Ernst Younger being this badass soldier who would get shot, get back up, killed who knows how many people. Most of us view Younger as a warrior. But let's not forget that Barthas will survive Verdun. In fact, he survived the whole war, eventually being demobilized in 1919. I think that's pretty hardcore also. It's truly remarkable anybody could survive the whole war, especially doing a rotation in Verdun. Barthas was quoted talking about one of those soldiers in his squad who completely broke. The Boilu smacked his officer in the face with a sack, then went running towards a German trench that they were just driven out of, singing a soldier song. The next morning, they found the man riddled with bullet holes. This was one of those guys that the squad looked after. He was an epileptic. His emotional state was a little more fragile than the others. And honestly, this was a guy who probably shouldn't have been on the front line or the war at that. It really hit Barthas' squad hard when they had to retrieve his dead body. This was just a little over a year into the war. Soldiers had already been breaking since the artillery shelling, shelling began for the war. Some weren't mentally fit to experience what the war had to offer in the lines. Yeah, I, I do realize he wasn't the mirrored soldier of Ernst Younger or someone like that. But I salute Barthas for making it through the whole war and not mentally breaking. I would really be curious to hear how he lived the rest of his life, though. Alright, now let's get into the heart of this episode. The Ottomans. The definition of inevitable states, certain to happen, unavoidable. Inevitable is a good word to describe the Ottomans and why they entered the Great War. I don't believe they had any business being in the war. But it was inevitable the world powers during this time would pull them into it. And because they'll enter the war, it was inevitable the Ottoman Empire would come crumbling down. But this episode won't cover the fall of the Ottomans. That's a podcast for a much later date in the future. But you'll get an understanding why things are the way they are in that part of the world. It's hard to believe that parts of the Middle East at one point were at a standstill from war. It sounds so cliche, but it's true. This area of the world has centuries of war under its belt. Actually, I should say has centuries of war under its belt because they're still at war. Believe it or not though, prior to the Great War, there was somewhat stability. The Ottoman economy was starting to pick up. Demobilized soldiers had returned to the workforce along with farmers returning home, increasing their crop sizes. A building boom was also taking place in towns across Turkish and Arab provinces. 
Trade resumed after sea lines were fully opened back up, increasing the import of foreign goods and their own exports. This also brought in modern age inventions such as new weapons of war. Up until 1908, automobiles had been banned from the Ottoman Empire. But after the Young Turk Revolution organized by the Committee of Union and Progress in 1908, they were finally permitted. For those that aren't familiar with the Young Turks Revolution, it was a constitutionalist revolution in the Ottoman Empire. The Committee of Union and Progress, an organization within the Young Turks, forced Sultan Abdul Hamid II to restore the Ottoman constitution and recall the parliament. This brought in multi-party politics within the empire. So they now allowed cars, but there was a problem. The streets of the empire were unpaved. Service and fuel stations were far and few. On top of that, there were no highway codes. Those who did have cars couldn't even agree which side of the road they should be on when encountering another vehicle. So yes, they did allow cars, but very few were sold in the empire. By 1913, it was estimated America had 1 million cars on the road. The Ottoman Empire had an estimated 500, with 250 of those in Constantinople. Baghdad, still being a remote city, you could count the number of cars by hand. However, by 1914, things had changed. The empire was experiencing its first of many traffic jams piled with limousines, touring cars, motor trucks, delivery wagons, and ambulances. This was progress and the citizens were happy to have it. The Young Turk era also introduced to the empire its first airplane. The first Turkish pilots were sent for training in 1911. By 1914, pilots were already claiming the skies above their territory. Another interesting historical fact, in February of 1914, Fethi Bey, accompanied by a man named Sadiq Bey, attempted to fly from Constantinople across Anatolia and Syria, then onto Egypt in different legs. They were cruising at speeds up to 60 miles per hour. That was fast for that time. When they passed at low levels, crowds would cheer them on. They reached Damascus safely, but experienced engine problems on their flight leg to Jerusalem. They crashed east of the Sea of Galilee, then both pilots were killed. Fethi and Sadiq Bey were laid to rest next to Saladin's tomb in Damascus. They were Turkey's first airmen to die in military service. May the same year, two more pilots completed the whole journey from Constantinople to Egypt. I had to pause the recording and go get another beer. I, I couldn't do it. I IPAs just aren't for me. I just, it's just not my cup of tea. I had a delirium tremens in the fridge. And as always, that goes down great. Delirium is just such a great beer. Okay. Where was I? Right. So by the spring of 1914, the Ottoman government secured a 100 million monetary loan from France. They were going to invest in electricity, public lighting, urban tramways, inner city railroads, and modern port facilities. The future 
was looking bright for the Ottomans. However, bum, 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 there's always a big bum, bum, bum when you hear however, especially when you're talking about the Great War, because France provided them with the ability to create a commercial and industrial boom. France required the Ottomans to put aside their differences following the Balkan War, accepting their losses in Albania, Macedonia, and Thrace. Well, even though the peace agreement was signed, issues remained between Constantinople and Athens. The terms of the 1913 Treaty of London after the First Balkan War provided Greece with three Aegean islands seized from Turkey, Chios, Lesbos, and Limnos. The Ottomans couldn't accept that Greece was dominating its own coastal waters. The empire pleaded with France and its allies to restore the islands back to them. But that didn't happen. So now, the Ottoman war planners worked to increase their naval power in the eastern Mediterranean. So you can see, after the Balkan Wars, how things were getting better for the Ottoman economy. But suddenly, there's a big shift in the tide. That word inevitable is coming into play. It was inevitable after the Balkan War that the empire would clash with Greece at some point. Since the empire now shifted more attention on their naval power, they commissioned two state-of-the-art dreadnoughts from the British, which were to be delivered by July of 1914. The two ships commissioned were to be named the Sultan Osman and the Residai. However, the purchase of these new warships would be a major drain on their treasury, so the government appealed to the public for patriotism, requesting public subscription. These ships were becoming the focus of Ottoman pride. They never had anything like this before. Now, they were about to have two state-of-the-art dreadnoughts with the help of its people. While this was going down, Greece and Russia were watching in the background with major concerns as July 1914 approached. If the British did deliver the ships, this would give the Turkish Navy a superior advantage over the now Russian-dominated Black Sea and the Greek domination in the Aegean. The dispute over the islands in the Aegean, and now the dreadnoughts commissioned by the Empire to gain the upper hand in the Mediterranean, raised the alarm regarding a possible new war between Greece and Turkey in 1914. Greece began demanding a preemptive strike against the Turks before the ships could be delivered. Once again, the same old record began to play. The Ottoman citizens were told to prepare for war. The Empire distributed notices in April of 1914 to its citizens, warning them of possible mobilization also reminding them of their loyalty to Islam because this would be a war with Christians of Greece. Although Russia had a close eye on the ships being built for the empire, this new threat of war between Greece and Turkey raised a big red flag for them. And here's why. Russia depended heavily on the Black Sea shipping lanes to remain open. 50% of their exports, including 90% of its grain exports, passed through the Turkish Straits. If Turkey went to war, they would for sure close the sea lanes. So, Russia was forced to use diplomacy to keep Greece from going to war, along with putting pressure on Britain to delay the delivery of the dreadnoughts. 
I've stated this before, that I believe Russian politicians were one of the biggest provokers pushing for the Great War to kick off. You can see how they have their hands in a lot of cookie jars. If they were so concerned about Turkey dominating the Black Sea, which they depended so much on for trade, why wouldn't they focus more attention on diplomacy by making the empire a stronger ally? Not stronger ally, I should say just an ally. Well, there's a reason for this. Russia had ulterior motives. The Tsar and Russian politicians felt that the fall of the Ottoman Empire was imminent. And they already had their eyes on staking claims to territories with strategic values. Russia's top priority was to reclaim Constantinople for Orthodox Christianity after nearly five centuries of Turkish Muslim rule, along with controlling the straits linking Russia's Black Sea ports to the Mediterranean. Russia, at all costs, was trying to prevent a war between Greece and Turkey that could result in these territories being lost to either Greece or Bulgaria. Russia could care less about Greece. They only intervened to protect their personal interest, which was taking from the Ottomans. In February of 1914, the Russian Council of Ministers met and proposed an occupation of Constantinople and the Straits. The Tsar approved this in April and committed his generals to create a necessary force to occupy both at the earliest possible opportunity. While planning this annex, the Russians also looked to take Anatolia, today called Asia Minor in Turkey. The eastern lands in Anatolia bordered with Russia's volatile Caucasus province, also providing access to northwestern Iran. Eastern Anatolia was also inhabited by Christian Armenians. An estimated 1.25 million of them lived in the Russian side of the border, one million of them on the Turkish side. The Russians had been using the defense of the Armenian rights as a way to intervene in Ottoman affairs since the later part of the 19th century. This was the cause of so much tension among the Armenians and the Turks. But the real tension emerged between the Armenians and the Kurds in the years following the Young Turk Revolution. The Kurds are Muslim, so naturally the Ottomans sided with the Kurds over Christian Armenians. Again, I'm not going to dive deep into the Armenians on this episode. If you'd like to hear more, I have an episode on the Armenian Genocide. Now, the Germans and the Ottomans. They had a pretty good relationship leading up to the Great War. This goes back to 1898 when Kaiser Wilhelms made a state visit. He started in Constantinople, then traveled across the Turkish and Arab provinces. In Damascus, the Kaiser pledged Germany's friendship to the Ottoman Empire and the Muslims of the world, saying, May the Sultan and his 300 million Muslim subjects scattered across the earth, who venerate him as their caliph, be assured that the German Kaiser will be their friend for all time. Now, this statement can be confusing. Clearly, he's friends with a Sultan. Therefore, he's friends with Muslims who recognize the Sultan as the Caliph, or the successor to the Prophet Muhammad, as they had him labeled. If you take the Sultan out of the picture, would the Kaiser still consider them his friend? 
In other words, if a Muslim isn't loyal to the Sultan, would they no longer be a friend? The Kaiser realized many Muslims were under British rule in India, the Persian Gulf, and Egypt. Germany wanted to gain sympathy from these other 100 plus million Muslims, basically using Islam as a weapon against the British in case a war was to break out in Europe. This turned into a political game of chess who was going to win over the most support from the Muslims. The British had already made a move in their favor by creating a system of exclusive treaties with Arab rulers in the crucial states of Oman, Qatar, Bahrain, and Kuwait. This is known today as the United Arab Emirates. Following the Kaiser's 1898 visit, Germany looked to exploit their new partnership with the empire. It was Germany's move in the game and they wanted to challenge Britain's dominance over the Persian Gulf. In December of 1899, Germany secured a deal to build a railway across Turkey to Basra on the Persian Gulf via Baghdad. Construction began in 1903 and by 1914, the railway linked Constantinople to Ankara and the Mediterranean coast near Adana in Anatolia. This new train line increased the strength between Berlin and Turkey. And on top of this, the Kaiser appointed a new military mission to the Ottomans at the end of 1913. The Grand Vizier Said Halim Pasha asked the Kaiser to nominate an experienced general to lead a team to assist in the reform and reorganization of the Ottoman army in the wake of the Balkan Wars. The Kaiser nominated his prized Prussian commander, you might have guessed it, General Otto Lehmann von Sanders, who accepted without any hesitation, even with no prior experience with the empire. He immediately set off by train for Constantinople in mid-December 1913. The Russians and the British were deeply concerned at this point because it was looking like the Ottomans were securing a strong ally. Shortly after Sanders' arrival, he met with the Sultan, the Grand Vizier, and the leaders of the Young Turks to discuss the state of the army and his new role. He had good things to say about everyone he met, except Enver Pasha, then commander of the Turkish army. Immediately after meeting, the two seemed to butt heads. Pasha, who proudly paraded his title as the liberator of Edirn, resented having a German officer take command of its army. Lehman was very critical regarding the deplorable state he found it in, basically saying it was in shambles. They had ragged uniforms, dilapidated barracks, soldiers were underfed and not being paid, and Sanders didn't necessarily put this blame on Enver Pasha. Instead, he believed Pasha had been promoted beyond his experience and ability. That's a diplomatic way of saying, this guy sucks. Politics within the Ottoman Empire were, let's just say, unstable since the Young Turks came into play. In January of 1914, the Committee of Union and Progress named Enver Pasha the Minister of War. Naturally, this caught the Sultan and Sanders by surprise. Now, we know that Russia really would like to have more control of the Straits. Actually, the truth is they wanted full, full control. After hearing about the new military mission 
and Vaughn Sanders being nominated as the 1st Army Corps commander, along with leading the security of the Straits, Russia voiced their disapproval and contested this. The Tsar's government threatened to occupy the, the eastern Anatolian city of Erzurum, but France and Britain would do whatever they had to do in order to stop Russia from retaliating in such a way. Britain is in a tough situation. One of their prized admirals, Arthur Olympus, had led a naval mission to the Ottoman Empire since 1912. He was commander-in-chief of the Ottoman Navy. They knew they couldn't break apart from the German military mission, so the British suggested Sanders take control of the Second Army Corps. This would relinquish his control of the First Army in Constantinople and the Straits. And let's not forget that the Kaiser, the Tsar, King George were related. They were first cousins. Talks were still going on behind the scenes at this point, so diplomacy was somewhat still in play. But Lehman von Sanders wasn't the kind of guy to be pressured by politicians. He pretty much told them to pound sand and that he wasn't going to take control of another army corps. But the Kaiser stepped in. His solution was to promote Sanders to field marshal, whose rank would be too high to command an army. So the command of the first army was passed to a lower ranking general. I really don't know how this could have been seen as a solution. The British were trying to get the German military mission away from Constantinople in favor of Russia. They still have a German general commanding the first army. Doesn't really make sense to me, but what do I know? By the summer of 1914, the Ottoman Empire had a lot weighing on its shoulders. On one side, they had this economic boom, which the people were in favor of. But now they had all this messy foreign relations to deal with. On the 28th of June, 1914, the pendulum swung on the side of foreign relations with the assassination of the Austrian pr Crown Prince, Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo. This opened Pandora's box. There was a web of secret alliances that were coming to light which divided Europe. The looming prospect of a European war increased the Russian threat of annexing Constantinople to control the Straits and Eastern Anatolia, which, if this happened, would ultimately tear apart the Ottoman Empire, leaving territory distribution to the Entente powers. France was eyeballing Syria. Britain had interests in Mesopotamia. Greece wanted to expand around the Aegean Sea. In reality, the Ottomans didn't stand a chance entering the upcoming war alone. Inevitably, they would be drawn into this and would be forced to pick a side. However, the Empire really didn't want to get into a European war. Their intention was to stay out of it, but just to have an ally to help protect its vulnerable territory. And at this time, they weren't necessarily looking directly toward Germany. They just wanted some superpower to help protect them while they continued to rebuild their military and increase their economy. The Young Turks leaders, also known as the Three Pashas, who were Enver Pasha, Talat Pasha, and Kemal Pasha, were also divided who to side with. 
Enver and Talat were leaning towards Germany, while Kamal, who was pro-France, was leaning to the side with the Entente. Kamal was considered a Francophile, which is kind of a weird title, but he had a reason to look at France for help. France was their chief financial creditor since the conclusion of the public loan back in May of 1914. Also, if France accepted, this would strengthen their ties with Britain, who was the biggest supporter of preserving the territorial integrity of the Ottoman Empire. Plus, Britain had just agreed to assist the Ottomans with a restructure of their navy and the new dreadnoughts. Kamal had become close with the Brits after being appointed as the Minister of Marine. So, it wasn't a shocker that he was looking at France or possibly Britain to protect their territory. Okay, now we need to pull up our boots a little higher because the turd is getting deep. After the assassination of the Archduke, Kamal gets an invitation from France in July to be a spectator for its naval maneuvers. This also gave him opportunity to touch base with some of his military officers monitoring the British shipbuilders commissioned to build their dreadnoughts. He asked for a full report on how the building was coming along and are they on schedule. And he didn't exactly get the response he was hoping for. The officers reported to Kamal that the British appeared to be playing games with them. They were constantly giving new excuses for delaying the completion and delivery of the new warships. Kamal, furious at this point, instructed the naval officers to take the ships, return them to Constantinople, and there they would complete the final fittings. He just wants the ships at this point because he knows the world's about to be turned upside down. Furious, frustrated, concerned, whatever the mixed emotions Kamal Pasha was feeling during this time, it caused him to go straight to the director of political affairs in Paris. No beating around the bush. He demanded to be entered into the Triple Entente and to protect the empire from the threat of Russia. The Triple Entente is France, Britain, and Russia, just in case you didn't know. In return, Kamal promised Turkey would be a faithful ally against the central powers of Germany and Austro-Hungary. This was a bold demand, and France knew the decision to allow them to join was not theirs alone. They needed the approval from Great Britain and Russia, and that's what their response was, that they needed the approval from the rest of the Entente, and that was very doubtful. That was actually their response. Kamal Pasha left Paris on July 18, 1914, knowing France would not protect them from Russia. On July 28, 1914, the Habsburg Empire declared war on Serbia. By August 4th, the Triple Entente was at war with Germany and Austro-Hungary. The Young Turks concluded they would get no support from France. And on August 1st, to make matters worse, the British government requisitioned the two dreadnoughts commissioned by the Ottomans. If you're Kamal Pasha, the Minister of Marine, upon hearing this, I'm sure you needed a brown bag to breathe in and out of. He realized what his naval officers had told him about the constant excuses given by the British regarding the delays in delivery 
was nothing but Britain's blueprint from the start. And that was to take control of the dreadnoughts themselves. The young Turks now believe the British never had intentions to deliver the ships. This was a huge stab in the back since they had been paid for by public contributions. This ruled out any possible treaty with Britain. The next day, on August 2nd, the Ottoman Empire made a secret alliance with Germany. Do you blame them? I don't. The British requisition the warships was a big slap in the face. France already turned their back on them. They had no choice but to extend their hand out to the Kaiser. Immediately after, Enver Pasha ordered a general mobilization. Men between the ages of 20 and 45 were required to register for the draft. Reserves were ordered to report to their units. To the Ottoman citizens, this was like having a bomb dropped on them. For once, they were focusing on economic growth. Things were changing for the better. Planes, trains, and automobiles were now a reality. But once again, war had made its way back to them which would cause their economy to crash. The large part of its labor force was men between the age of 20 and 45. Now they're being called up for war. They would have nearly nobody to work the factories and fields. Trade, which had began to boom, collapsed. The citizens were no strangers to war after recently going through three in consecutive order. They knew their world was about to be rattled yet again. On August 3rd, the Ottomans closed the straits. The only ships allowed in and out were German. Two in particular from the Mediterranean squadron had crossed through in order to disrupt troop transports from Algeria to France. The heavy battleship Govin and the light cruiser Bruslo. The squadron inflicted casualties in fear, but after hearing that the French and the British ordered their fleet to sink the two ships, they were ordered back to the Turkish waters. Enver Pasha had already pleaded with Germany to send warships to Turkish waters even before the official alliance agreement, believing this would compensate for the lost dreadnoughts. Berlin gave its consent with the expectations that these warships would be used to draw Turkey into a war on a new front with Russia. Clearly, Germany also had an interest sending their ships to Turkish waters. On August 10th, the Bruslo and Goldman were seen approaching the Straits. Enver Pasha sent a telegram to his commander at the Dardanelles, ordering him to allow them a safe passage. Side note, by this time, the Dardanelles Straits was completely littered with sea mines. Shortly after the Germans were granted safe passage, the British and French ambassadors had the balls to actually contact the Grand Vizier to protest against the decision to allow the ships to enter the Dardanelles. I mean, seriously. After the betrayal by both, they still had the nerve to voice their displeasure with this decision, which was supposedly an infringement of Ottoman neutrality. Both France and Britain knew damn well that the Ottoman Empire would be dragged into this one way or another. But here's the thing. Remember, the Empire really didn't want to go to war and would try to hold out as long as it could. They had two options to remain neutral at this point. Demand German ships to leave its waters within 24 hours 
was the first one. And the second, disarm and intern the German ships in an Ottoman port. We knew number one wasn't going to happen. So they proposed a compromise with the Germans. They would transfer the ships to Turkish ownership through a purchase for 80 million marks. The Bruslo and Gobin were renamed Yavu Sultan Selim and Medili. But here's the kicker. The ships would still be operated and controlled by Germans who were integrated in the, I'm saying this with quotes, Turkish Navy. Problem solved. Or so they would think. One good thing is happening for them, though. Up to this point, they didn't have anybody to protect them from Russian aggression. Now they had the Germans. And by them gaining, I don't want to say control of the warships, but what Europe believes they have now control of two major warships, this puts control of the Straits back on the Turkish side. Despite the Ottomans wishing to delay entering the war until a German-Austral victory was imminent, this wasn't going to happen now. Not since Germany sold them the ships. The Germans demanded they get involved and quick. But Germany didn't view the Ottomans as the best ally. In a way, they viewed them more as a liability. However, now the Kaiser is invested in them, so they'll have to find some use for them. War planners from the German Imperial Army got together to, to decide the best course of action. At first, the, the immediate reaction by some was to throw them at the Russians on a new front to free more German soldiers for the Western Front. But there were some concerns. They had lost seven consecutive wars with Russia since 1711 in the Russo-Turkish Wars. Actually, one of those being the Crimean War between 1853 and 1856. Regardless, since 1711, the Russians had been defeating them in battle. German commanders had no confidence the Turkish army could beat Russia. Should they attack Russia and lose, the Ottoman Empire would face certain dismemberment. Other planners believe they should be used to conduct an attack on the British in Egypt. The Suez Canal can be a huge benefit should the Ottomans take it over, which could disrupt communications between India and the British. Now, the Germans aren't dumb. They know the British have the canal heavily defended. However, they believe the Ottomans contained a secret weapon which would take the Tommies by surprise. That secret weapon was religion. The Sultan held the religious office of Caliph. A caliph is a chief Muslim civil and religious ruler. I guess you would maybe compare it to the Pope, I think. I'm not an expert on religion. Regardless, there's 12 million Muslims in Egypt during this time. You see where I'm going with this? Germany was looking to gain sympathy from Muslims in Egypt, along with Muslims in British and French colonies, along with Muslims in Asia and Africa. They wanted a declaration of jihad. If they could achieve this, Muslims would for sure rise up in Egypt and run off the British with the support of the Turkish army. This is like a daytime soap opera, right? 
With all the talks about bringing back a jihad, this brings Baron Max von Oppenheim into the picture. The Baron was a German lawyer, diplomat, ancient historian, an archaeologist, and a member of the Oppenheim banking dynasty. He abandoned his career in diplomacy to focus on archaeology. In 1899, while traveling through what is now Syria, but then Ottoman territory, establishing routes for the Baghdad Railway, he discovered Tel Halaf, an ancient site dating back to the 6th millennium BCE. He was also an author of several books. One of his readers was T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. Oppenheim, more importantly, gained the trust of the Kaiser. Every summer when the Baron visited Germany, he would sit with the Kaiser and brief him on the state of the Muslim world. Oppenheim predicted in 1906 that in the future, Islam will play a much larger role. He was also hostile towards the British. For what reason, I don't know. But when the war broke out, he immediately established a jihad bureau in Berlin to produce pan-Islamic propaganda to instigate revolts. I might have also forgotten to mention, during this time there was an estimated 80 million Muslims living in India. For the young Turks, they too believed that religious fanaticism could be used as a weapon. Enver Pasha saw the power of Islam when he fought in Libya in 1911. Kamal Pasha saw Islam as a way to bond Arabs and Turks together. The Unionist leaders were convinced that Jihad could be revived to serve as their weapon against the Entente. But even as much as they were willing to invest in a new Jihad, the Ottoman Empire still didn't want to get into this war. They wanted to stay out of it as long as possible, actually hoping to never get in it. So desperate they went as far as making a secret alliance proposition on the side with Russia just three days after making an alliance with Germany. On August 5th, Enver Pasha, who was the most advocate of their alliance with Germany, stunned the Russian military attaché in Constantinople. Enver, along with the Grand Vizier Said Halim and Talat Pasha, proposed a defensive alliance. They sought the guarantee of Ottoman territory integrity, the return of the three Aegean islands, and Bulgarian-held Western Thrace. In return, they would give, give full military support to the Entente and dismiss all German officers and technicians who were currently working in Ottoman territory. The Russian officials in Constantinople actually seemed to support this proposition. Well, then... The Ottoman ambassadors of St. Petersburg, Feridun Bey, approached the Russian government with a similar proposition. He told the foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, that they sought territorial guarantees along with a Russian pledge to withhold their support for Armenians in eastern Anatolia. Sazanov, who really could care less about the young Turks at this point, Along with his own ambassador's support for the proposal the Turks just laid down to him in Constantinople, refused to abandon the Armenian reform project, along with pronouncing what little faith he had in Enver's promise to break ties with Germany. 
Sazanov did say he would guarantee Ottoman territory during the war, only with the support from the rest of the Entente, but nothing was guaranteed after the war. So the Turks decided to stick with Germany. By September 1914, the war was in full effect. The casualty rate was beyond what anybody could have imagined. The Germans suffered well over 250 casualties just on the Western Front alone. This was the estimated number. The Austro-Hungarian casualties were over 320,000 in Galicia, along with over 100,000 taken prisoner. Germany's patience with the Ottoman Empire was exhausted. The Central Powers demanded that they open a new front with the Russians to relieve the pressure. The Young Turks continued to promise that they would enter the war, but not until they received funds for war materials. This rattled the cage and pissed off some German generals, one of those being the German Minister of War, General Erich von Falkenhayn. Falk flat out refused to accept any further requests for ammunition, artillery, and officers to fill the ranks of the Turkish army until they went to war with Germany's enemies. Berlin was pissed that the Young Turks continued to stall. As far as they were concerned, the transfer of the Goldman and Bruslau gave the Ottomans the perfect weapon to display their dominance and initiate hostilities with Russia in the Black Sea. Now, we know that when the Turkish army fires the first shots, neutrality is over at that point. The Young Turks and the Sultan understood this. There were still the hopes of a jihad to support them once this happens. In mid-October, Minister of War Enver Pasha goes to the negotiation table offering an immediate naval attack on Russia in return for financial support. He also promised to contain Russia in eastern Anatolia and an attack on the British in Egypt. In addition to this, the Sultan would declare a holy war against the Entente powers. This was music to Berlin's ears. They quickly accepted the deal and would transfer 2 million Turkish pounds in gold to Constantinople once they opened the hostilities. Germany promised 3 million more pounds to be distributed over the next eight months. On the 24th of October, Minister of Marine Kamal Pasha drew up plans authorizing Admiral Sushan to conduct maneuvers in the Black Sea. Enver Pasha gave Sushan a second set of orders instructing him to attack Russian naval forces. Sushan and his crew set off for the Black Sea on October 27th. And here's the thing. Although he and his crew had been brought into the Turkish Navy, their loyalty remained with the Kaiser. This is ultimately who had the last words for this crew. Sushan opened hostilities against the Crimean Black Sea Fleet on October 29th, sinking a gunboat and a mine-laying vessel. The Goldman also shelled the Russian city of Sevastopol. Russia, Britain, and France recalled their ambassadors from Constantinople before officially declaring war on the Ottoman Empire on November 2nd. They were now at war. All that remained was a call for jihad. When I first started this podcast, 
I know I said that politics wouldn't be my main focus. And although I want to remain true to the statement, some, some things can't be ignored. Some of this has to be talked about to have a better understanding why things happened the way it did. We know politicians and the aristocrats created this war. This episode is just more proof what shysters all of them were and the malarkey they created. And you can relate this to how the world is being ran today. A bunch of politicians still destroying everything right in front of our face. And all the citizens just sit back and accept the inevitable. All right, folks, I'm going to wrap this up right here. On the next episode, part two of the Ottomans, I'll discuss the battles the empire entered into, the plead for a global jihad, and hopefully this will get me up to the autumn months of 1915. I'd like to thank everyone for your continued support for the show. All you listeners are the best. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.